Hi, this is Ann Robertson, pastor of the United Methodist Church of Westford in Westford, Massachusetts. This is the sermon from this morning, February 4th, which was a communion Sunday here at the church, and you'll see that reflected, or rather hear that reflected in the sermon. Please remain standing for the second gospel reading this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark in the second chapter, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Mark is a gospel that is full of action. A gospel is a book that tells about the life of Jesus, and Mark is the shortest of the four gospels that we have in the New Testament. It's also the most action-oriented, and many scholars think that it represents the preaching of Peter, that Mark was, after Jesus' death and resurrection, followed Peter around on his mission and that when he wrote it came primarily from listening to Peter telling the stories and in a preaching style. Some gospels are concerned about who Jesus is, especially John. Mark is concerned with what Jesus does. And all of that means that when you read the gospel of Mark, it's much easier to see how it got to the point where Jesus was betrayed and crucified. Jesus calls things as he sees them. He does what's needed rather than what's expected. And he calls people to account when their hypocrisy surfaces. He doesn't go unnoticed, and not a few people really, really hate him. While Luke is still busy with angels singing to shepherds, Mark already has Jesus out engaged against evil spirits, amazing the crowds, and in trouble with the religious authorities. Jesus is an activist in Mark, a rebel for righteousness, if you will. He abides by the law only insofar as the law doesn't violate the higher law of God. Chapter 2 of Mark shows that part of Jesus plainly. The beginning of the chapter, just before what I read, tells the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man who had friends lower him through the roof to get down to the crowds where Jesus was. He'd been healing people before, but in this story, he makes the religious leaders upset by claiming and demonstrating that Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. The next story is the one that I just read. He calls disciple number five, Levi, who happens to be a tax collector. The people of Israel hated tax collectors. Even their worse reputation than the IRS. (laughs) They were native people who were hired by the occupying nation of Rome to do the dirty work 
of collecting the burdensome taxes. As a reward for Native people being willing to do that, Rome never asked for an accounting beyond getting what they said they needed in the tax, which meant that the tax collectors could ask for just as much as they wanted. And so long as they gave Rome what Rome said they wanted, the rest of it could just go in and line their pockets. And that's what they did. Tax collectors were viewed as lowlifes who would sell their own people down the river in order to make a buck. Jewish leaders lumped tax collectors with the worst of sinners and stayed as far away from them as possible. And now, here comes this powerful and influential Jewish leader in the person of Jesus. And he's calling one of these scum to be a disciple. And then he's going and eating with him in his home. Eating with someone makes an important statement, as does going to someone's home. Eating with someone in their home is a sign of acceptance, even in our relaxed culture, and with the strong ethos of hospitality that existed then and still does exist in the Middle East, it was even more so. The leaders believe that Jesus is setting a darn bad example for the people, and they show their displeasure by raising the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and with sinners? The chapter then goes on with more questions. As the leadership is getting more concerned and looking deeper into this new group, they discover that some common Jewish practices aren't being followed. The other Jewish leaders are fasting. Even the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting. Jesus' disciples were not. Why is he not participating in the program, they want to know. By the end of chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples have gone so far as to actually break Jewish law by doing work on the Sabbath, breaking the fourth commandment, and worse, claiming that he has authority over the Sabbath. He breaks Sabbath law again at the beginning of chapter 3. By the end of chapter 3, the religious leaders are saying that Jesus is obviously demon-possessed and his own family, Mary and his brothers, come and show up to take him home because he's obviously gone mad. And when they do show up, he disowns them. Who are my, bro my mothers and sisters and brothers? Those who listen to and obey the word of God. Jesus is a lot of things. But predictable, boring, and wishy-washy are not any of them. Now, with that picture of Jesus that we get in Mark, I want us to go back and look at the story of the calling of Levi and that subsequent dinner at his house. What does that show us about Jesus? And what does it mean for us now? The story is an example of what we in the church call grace. It's why we talk about amazing grace. Because grace isn't what you'd expect. It amazes us, just as it amazed the religious leaders, the Pharisees of Jesus' day. When we talk about grace, we mean that God is willing to bridge the gap between our sin and God's righteousness. When our sin, for whatever reason, keeps us from going to God, God will come to us instead. It's not that God ignores sin or sloughs it off. Jesus wasn't at all indifferent to the fact that tax collectors were stealing from their own people. Jesus railed against the sins surrounding money and possessions 
more than anything else except idolatry. But Jesus' actions show us that God's approach to sin is not to remain separate and condemn it from afar, but to come and to dwell with the sinner in love and let that light show the sinner what needs cleaning up. Grace means that God accepts us as we are, before repentance, before we even know that we've done anything wrong. We are loved as we are, and it's in the strength of receiving the unconditional love from the God of the universe that we have the courage and the strength to change our lives. Jesus makes this same point in another famous story, the one that that, um, Joe read from Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is also a tax collector, and he's become rich at the expense of his own people. He's short, so he has a tough time seeing when the big crowds surrounding Jesus come by, and so ever sing that little song in Sunday school about Zacchaeus climbing up the sycamore tree? We remember that, and so he goes up the tree so he can see what's going on. Jesus walks right by that tree, and when he does, he stops, he calls to Zacchaeus, And what does he say? He doesn't say, you rotten person, repent of your sin, hide in those trees, be ashamed of what you've done, you're just a rotten human being and I'm going on by. He says, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. It was an invitation of honor. In this story, it's not just the religious leaders, but all of the crowds that are upset that Jesus picks a tax collector to go home with. Anybody in that crowd would have been thrilled to have Jesus come into their home for a meal. And he picks this guy. But before Jesus has a chance to talk to Zacchaeus about anything at all, Zacchaeus turns around and gives half of everything he owns to the poor and promises to repay anybody he's defrauded four times over. And Jesus responds, Today, salvation has come to your house. Zacchaeus didn't have to say certain magic words. Jesus didn't sit him down and tell him what his sins were and explain that he needed to repent. Jesus simply showed unconditional love to a man who was despised by everyone. And in that love, Zacchaeus didn't feel the need to be rich anymore or to cheat people. Levi, back in Mark, didn't either. When Jesus was willing to place a special call on the life of a tax collector, Levi left behind that tax booth and all the money that it brought him in an instant. We are the body of Christ. That means by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to be Christ for others, to be Jesus in the flesh here and now and to bring God's love to others just as he did 2,000 years ago. Are you willing to show God's love to the tax collectors and to the sinners, whoever those represent to you? Can you sit and eat with them without an agenda other than providing the loving presence of God? In the United Methodist Church, we embody that love in our sacrament of Holy Communion. Unlike some other churches, our communion table is open to everybody, to fraudulent tax collectors sitting in trees, as well as to those who've never cheated a soul. We don't require that you be a member of this church 
or of any church. We don't require that you have any claims to righteousness. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. In this passage and in many others, Jesus is always getting in trouble for the sinful riffraff that he hangs out with. Time and time again, he points out that this is precisely why he came, out of love for the down and out, for the addict, for the adulterer, for the cheat, for the hypocrite, wanting to show them love so that they can have the courage to change their lives and to live better ones. Jesus could have preached until he was blue in the face and never gotten Zacchaeus to even acknowledge his own greed, let alone atone for it. But by welcoming the outcast, by showing that God is the God of all, and that sinners are not to be especially shunned, but especially sought out, Jesus touched a heart where no words could ever have reached. That's the message that we want to send in communion. It's the table of Jesus Christ, the one who welcomes sinners and eats with them, the one who died for us while we were yet sinners, as the liturgy says. Jesus doesn't wait for Zacchaeus to have a change of heart before he goes to visit. He doesn't check with Levi to see if he's sorry for the abuses of his profession before he calls him. Jesus calls and visits and eats with unrepentant sinners, And it's after they find that Jesus loves them as they are that they respond with changed lives. To me, the walk to the communion table is the right kind of altar call. Anyone and everyone is welcome there because Jesus is the host. Some people complain that the church is full of hypocrites. Well, praise God, better here than not here. Better coming to Jesus' table than not. More than that, I would say that if hypocrisy is the worst sin that you can find in the pews on Sunday morning, then the church isn't doing its job. If the people in the community are not grumbling about the sorts of folks that we let in our doors, there's a good chance that we're not being the body of Christ in Westford. I'm not saying that we should seek out the worst of sinners as our close friends or spouses. I'm saying that we need to extend the unconditional love of God to everybody, that we must never turn our backs, withhold invitations, or fail to reach out to every single human being, no matter what they have done, no matter what they are doing. We must be agents of God's grace in the world. How can anyone possibly understand that God, God, loves them unconditionally if they've never experienced that from another human being. Before going into ministry, I did a lot of work as a literacy volunteer, and that work took me into the prisons. After a prison workshop where I had trained 16 male inmates who were all serving life sentences to teach other inmates to read. After all, they're going to be there a while. It was a good investment in training. I caused a huge controversy because when each of the inmates came up at the end of the course to receive their certificates, I hugged them all. There were no corrections officers present, and I didn't know any better. I never had any training about that. I didn't know it was against the rules. 
I just knew that in my heart I was strangely proud of this motley crew of criminals who had done unspeakable things for finally getting involved in something that would help rather than harm other people. So when they came up, I hugged them. Well, word got out and the administration got upset and I got reprimanded. And in the wake of all of that, one of the inmates who'd been in that class wrote me a letter. He expressed his regrets that I had gotten into trouble and he said, but Anne, you don't know what that did for us. Do you understand that nobody has even wanted to hug me in 16 long years? I wasn't there to preach the gospel. I didn't say a word about God or of my faith. But the gospel was preached in a hug to the unhuggable. It wasn't a great act on my part. It was, was not something that I thought about or planned out ahead of time. But our little acts can have great impact when they're done with the love of God. Mother Teresa, I think, said it best when she pointed out that life was not about seeking to do great things, but rather to do small things with great love. God is love, and that was evident in the life of Jesus. He didn't work himself up to the great deed of finding the worst of sinners, swallowing his pride, and then eating with them. He ended up eating with sinners because he loved them just as much as anybody else. He saw no distinction other than their need of him. That's the source, I think, from which all our actions should spring, from the living water of the love of God. If you find that you're avoiding people because of their profession or their lifestyle or their actions, begin by praying for more love. With more love, you might discover that what you thought was sin is just difference. I've often found that true. And I've also found that when God's light shines more brightly on the dark corners of my life, that my withholding the love of God meant for everyone is as much of a sin as breaking a commandment or one of God's laws. You're each welcome at the dinner table through the amazing grace of God. Will you accept the invitation? Will you invite others? Will you eat with them? Amen. Thanks for subscribing to Spirit Walker Sermons. If you're ever in the area, stop in for worship at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 10 Church Street in Westford, Massachusetts. I'd love to have you stop by my website at www.annrobertson.com, where you can also subscribe to a weekly devotion, which you can receive either as an email or a podcast. I'd love to hear from you via email at ann at Thanks again for subscribing, and I hope your week is filled with God's blessings. Music